So tonight we're going to be thinking about uh, a book written back in the early 70s, <clears throat> Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. As you probably know, if you've paid any attention to politics over the last 20 or 30 years or maybe longer, uh, what is contained in this book is viewed by those on what we might call the radical left as the means to bring about the revolution. So we will uh, look at this for a few minutes tonight. I will start with my verbose summary. It's suitable for publication if you want to uh, put this in a newsletter or something of that sort. Let me take a deep breath. Rules for Radicals is a nauseating specimen of literary excrement that reeks of rambling irrationality and misplaced self-righteous indignation. It is the revolutionary manifesto of a man-man, a madman without a cause, whose sole vision is channeling the latent hatred of the oppressed underclass for the exercise of raw power for institutional destruction. Alinsky's philosophy is tempered by the unshakable confidence that somewhere in that pile of revolutionary horse manure is the pony of a better society. It is a classic pitting of the have-nots against the haves for the sole purpose of trading places with them and perpetuating an endless cycle of revolution with no means of reconciliation. Meanwhile, one is left to wonder how anything constructive can ever come from finding your life's purpose in hating and destroying your enemies while pretending to care about human dignity. So that should kind of set the tone for what I have to follow. Now I want to include a hat tip to a movie that John mentioned last week, Unbreakable. I think I'd seen it before, but I went and watched it again and had a a different way to look at it the next time. And then I watched the making of little documentary, and this is a direct quote from the director of the movie who also wrote the screenplay. Good cannot exist without evil, and evil cannot exist without good. And so basically, Elijah, the bad guy, his character needed to find the hero, which is played by Bruce Willis, so he could take his mantle and be the villain. And I thought this is, it's a perfect summary of what you were talking about with the New Age philosophy. So that was an entertaining uh, little exercise to watch the movie. Alinsky explicitly embraces this idea of Eastern duality, the yin-yang. There's good and bad in everything, and moral judgment is mostly a matter of perspective. A little background, Rules for Radicals was published in 1971. Alinsky died just a year later. He started organizing back in the 1930s. And think about where things were by the end of the 1960s as he's writing this book. Uh, probably John and Randy are the only ones that remember the 60s. So this is for the rest of us. Me better than him. <laughs> so we'd had several decades of war. We were in the middle of the nuclear arms race with the USSR. Uh, there were growing fears at this time of overpopulation and pollution increasing minority and uh, increasing poverty in minority communities and increasing discontentment among the baby boomer generation. And so we're starting to see these generational divides 
really uh, show up. And then a little more specifically, 1965 is when Mark Hughes uh, gave his essay on repressive tolerance. A year later, we have Cloward and Piven publishing what is supposed to be an academic paper, but is really kind of a revolutionary paper, and that strategy shows up over and over again, the idea that we can destroy the system by simply overwhelming it. 1968, the population bomb again, feeding those concerns by the late 60s that were there were too many people and uh, we were headed for disaster. <coughs> In Alensky's philosophy, contradiction is a feature and not a bug. He says all of life is a contradiction. He says there are no absolutes. His morality is relativistic and pragmatic. That shouldn't be surprising. He, he devotes an entire chapter to explaining how the ends justify the means. Uh, he also states, and this was interesting, that personal conscience doesn't really count for much. You have to yield your personal conscience to the collective good. The right means are judged by these kinds of ideas. What are you able to do in a certain situation? The effect that it's likely to produce in other words, using the available means to produce the most desirable outcome. So again, very pragmatic, pragmatic approach to ethics, if we could call it that. He also says that words, like everything else, are relative. He doesn't seem to notice the contradictions that he makes, or, or I think he does, actually, because he basically dismisses the contradictions and says that's just... You know, that's par for the course. You're going to have contradictions. So he says words are relative, but clear communication is critical. <laughs> I, I know. Conflict is also a feature. He says change means movement, movement means friction. Only in the frictionless vacuum of a non existent abstract world can movement or change occur without the abrasive friction of conflict. And the gist of it is that we have to tear down the existing structures before we build something new. Uh, except that at the end of the day, there's really nothing new to build. Now, over the last week or so, I came across a couple of articles that had a little tidbit I thought would be helpful in kind of drawing out some points here. This one by Gene uh, Beef. In this article, he says, the liberals believe uh, that individuals can do little, so the idea of powerlessness, and that solving problems requires changing systems. Whereas conservatives tend to believe that solving the problems, even in systems, means changing the people who are caught up in the system. So, interesting way of contrasting the worldview. Do you think that when you look at the problems around us, that the solution to the problem is changing the system, or is the solution to the problem changing the person in the system? So I think it comes down to this, the age-old question of whether man is basically good or bad. What is the nature of man, especially after the fall? 
And then I also read a review of Tim Challies of this book called Terms of Service by Chris Martin, and it sounds interesting. He says, social media causes us to demonize people we dislike, and it causes us to destroy people we demonize. And I think what's implied, even though it's not stated, is that we reflexively dislike the people that we disagree with. There's very little room for disagreement in the culture that we live in today. It's kind of interesting, again, to think in terms of the context that Alinsky's writing in. This was 25 years or so before the Internet, at least. 35 years probably before social media. If we throw those things into the mix, think about how that changes the equation for those who are trying to organize. I don't think he could have imagined the power of social media to build the kinds of communities he's talking about because he says the community is not necessarily the proximity of the people to each other, but their common cause, whatever it happens to be. <coughs> I would describe Alinsky as a pseudo-intellectual. It's interesting that he has so many historical, literary, philosophical, and biblical references throughout his book. He's not an uneducated or an uninformed guy. He's able to draw from a lot of different sources as he's making his arguments. But the problem is, his major premises are wrong. And so, his argument ends up being intellectual nonsense at the end of the day. I would describe it like this, that sinful emotion is the driving force behind his philosophy. Especially these things, envy, greed, hatred, and the desire for revenge. Those are the kinds of emotions that you need to stir up in people to get them to do something. And this would be my assessment of where we are today, that his 20th century pseudo-intellectualism has become 21st century infantile emotionalism has all of the emotion, but none of the intellect. <clears throat> I won't labor this point, but just to mention it, that he does make a number of biblical references and even has some quotations throughout his uh, manifesto. He talks about Moses as being someone who is very wise in his ability to negotiate with an angry God sees Paul as a revolutionary and also quotes from Jesus as one who is a polarizing figure. Whoever is not with us is against us. So you can go ahead and add blasphemy to his list of moral failures. Now again, this is funny. I think it's funny for most of us to read this, that Alinsky is adamantly opposed to any manner of dogmatism and he's very dogmatic about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect that truth, in his case, would get in the way of the revolution. Meanwhile, he wants to justify revolution as this ongoing process, this endless process. I think he even uses the word an eternal quest for finding these values of freedom, equality, justice, peace, and the right to dissent. So one at the same time he says, we can't be dogmatic about anything, 
but we have these values. And he says these values reflect all of our religious traditions, including the Judeo-Christian tradition. And then, of course, he wants to uphold what he calls the preciousness of human life, which, of course, is a little inconsistent, as we will see. One of the more interesting things that I found in his book that that totally resonated with me was this dilemma that he runs into as he is going around and training people, or trying to train people, to become revolutionaries. And the difficulty is that they can only relate to their own experiences and don't know how to take the principles that he's trying to describe and apply them into a new a new uh, situation that they don't have any experience in. So people are, are limited by what they know and can't extrapolate their past experience to a new situation. So Rules for Radicals, this book, was actually an attempt to systemize, systematize a number of the tactics that he described in an earlier book from 1946 called Reveille for Radicals. And I didn't get around to reading that one. I'll do that next year. And that was 1946? Originally published in 46. There was a reprint of it, uh, I think just a year or two before Rules for Radicals came out. So I would put the problem like this. And I can relate this to my experience doing industrial training. In the nutshell, people don't know how to think logically. In other words, to take their particular experience in a certain kind of factory and to be able to pick that up and take that to a different kind of factory. And then the view, especially of people from the corporate staff group, as outsiders. You don't work in this plant. You don't understand our process. You don't understand our problems. You can't help us. And it's because people have not been trained to think abstractly. So part of the result of that, the consequence, is that you end up with highly compartmented specialization. In other words, if you work in a certain kind of factory for a few years, you're probably going to work there the rest of your life. As opposed to moving over to a similar kind of factory, but in a different product line in the same industry. So you end up with, there's not really a nice way to put it, but we use this idea of inbreeding, right? That you kind of get compartmentalized or stuck in that because your expertise depends upon that particular experience and transferring that someplace else becomes very difficult. This is what I deduce. If he has already seen this problem through his training in, and I assume, the 50s and the 60s, he's writing in the early 70s here, then I would say that by this time the educational system has already failed because it's not teaching people how to think. And of course the frustration for him as a revolutionary is that makes it very hard to reproduce leadership and move the revolution forward when you have people that are good tacticians 
but not very good leaders. <clears throat> he uses a number of different descriptive terms for organizer, which includes organizer, revolutionary, activist, radical, agitator. Thinking back about 15 years or so, the term that I remember hearing the most often was community organizer. And I think you probably know who I'm referring to because that was literally the only thing that was on his resume. It was a community organizer. Well, he was one of these, an activist, an agitator, revolutionary, and this after the school of people like Alinsky. <clears throat> so how do you make a revolutionary? Well, it's interesting, and again, he, he by describing these kinds of things, he's revealing his worldview. He basically says, this is my wording, that activism is the spice of life. In other words, he says that people hunger for the drama and adventure in their search for personal identity. Think about that. Your identity is not based on something that is intrinsic to you. It's based on what you do or what you're engaged in. Uh, he taps into the idea that everybody wants something that they don't have. And then he says when you're organizing, you want to bring in as many issues as you can because the goal of organization is to get, get stuff done, right? To keep the action going. So the more issues you have, then you could switch from issue to issue. He says people will get bored and lose interest if there's just a one-issue organization. More issues also means more people, and of course, more people means more power. And it's funny, by about page 12 or 13, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, he sure seems to use the word power a lot. Polarization is part of the strategy. Again, this is going to sound a little familiar, I think. He says it's essential to the revolution. Here's a short quote. One acts decisively only in the conviction that all the angels are on one side and all the devils are on the other. And he is very, very uh, uninhibited about referring to the other side as the enemy. So he speaks in these, you know, using this battle kind of language. We're the good guys, they're the enemy, whatever they are. They have something we want, so that makes them the enemy. So the key to advancing the revolution is to direct your animosity toward the enemy, and very specifically. The enemy is not allowed to possess any virtue. Uh, I'm thinking of somebody who was recently president, and just about everything that you heard in the news regarding him was what? Negative. Nobody could acknowledge that this person had any virtue or had accomplished anything, anything noteworthy. It's that kind of thing. It's all or nothing. Uh, he also says the enemy has to be particular and not general. It has to be a specific person. So again, the idea is to focus your hostility towards a person. And this sounds to me like something from Orwell where they have the two-minute hate and put up a picture of Emmanuel Goldstein for everybody to hate on, right? There, there's a specific object. And he's, he's very, you know, outspoken when he says this, that the goal 
is to inflame people's resentments so that they will act. So think about the, the underlying idea behind all this is you've got to, you know, people already are unhappy about something. You have to figure out what that is, and then you stir up hostility. <clears throat> Interesting his ideas on compromise. He says when you're agitating, of course, you demand everything, but then when it comes time to negotiating, you'll take anything. And I think the idea behind that, and here, as I'm reading this, by the way, just kind of a footnote, one of my interests in reading this book at this particular time is thinking about what's going on in the PCA. <coughs> so this is what I'm thinking. That if you can get your opposition to budge even a little bit, then you can always come back with more demands. Essentially, if they will move an inch, then you know you can get them to move another inch, and another inch, and another inch. <clears throat> He's also very explicit about defining classes. Mostly the haves and the have-nots. And here I want to have a little fun with this. The haves have what you want, and they don't want you to have it. They have the power... And their efforts revolve around preserving what they have. So it's kind of a defensive posture of the haves. The have-nots, of course, are the oppressed underclass who want what the haves already have. And by not having what the haves have, they naturally hate the haves and want to destroy them. So there's your conflict. And it sounds maybe, a little... Maybe they have to destroy them. Probably. I think there's a moral imperative in here somewhere. Okay. Right? And, and this, this sounds like Marxism, this, this conflict between the economic classes. He also describes the have-a-little-want-mores. He doesn't say too much about them, but describes them as the middle class. Most of his attention is on those first two categories. Organizational is all about power. He goes on to say that the sole purpose of organizations is to wield power. Change comes from power, and power comes from organization. Power is in the organization, the organization is power. He even makes a reference to the church, that when people believe a certain thing, they get together and call it a church so they can exercise power. So that's his paradigm of what organization is all about. Of course, the size of the organization is going to determine its potential to exercise power, Numbers are critical to the objective, the revolutionary objective. And he goes on to say it's not only how much power you have, but how much power the other side thinks you have. And I think about that a lot too in relation to what's happening between the relationship of, of state and citizen. If it's the case... And, and I can apply this again to the PCA, so let me use that example. If you're in a minority, but you want to bring about change, then you have to make it look like you're bigger than you are, you have more power than you have. If it were the case that you were already in the majority, what would happen? You would have force to put behind your agenda. You wouldn't have to try to persuade the other side to surrender their position to yours. So that dynamic tells you that those who are trying to bring about change don't have the preponderance of power, not yet. And he 
uses an example in the book about Lenin and the Bolsheviks uh, that when they were in the minority, they were happy to use their influence through normal channels, voting and so forth, until they were in power, and then, of course, it was forced. So the perception of power is what can help compel your enemy to surrender without uh, a confrontation. Now this is kind of funny and ironic at the same time. <clears throat> he says that being arrested in jail has a variety of benefits that serve the cause. Part of it is street credibility. You know, you're taking it for the team. Polarization because it, it's kind of the martyr complex. You're being picked on. You're being singled out. Your enemy is attacking you. And then in his case, he says, this is where I had time to systematize my philosophy. He even spells out some tactics and says, it's better to have small infractions, enough to get you arrested or jailed for a few days. You don't want a long jail term because if you're in jail for too long, people just forget about you. Uh, here's my assessment that based on his philosophy, uh, I don't think he spent enough time in jail. He still had some kinks to work out. <clears throat> now part of his approach is essentially pushing against the establishment in an effort to try to get the establishment to react. Okay, So I'm calling this Newton's third law of revolution. For every activist action, there's an opposite reaction from the enemy. And the enemy's reaction is the key to the revolution. And because you don't know what it's going to be, you have to stay on your toes and be prepared to take advantage of whatever move your enemy, enemy makes in uh, response to your action. So be prepared for whatever that, whatever that next step is. And part of the goal here is to surprise your enemy by your tactics and hope that it's a clumsy response that works to your advantage. And one of the things he mentions is the importance of ridiculing your enemies. He says the enemy really hates being ridiculed and they will almost always react to that. So in that kind of a back and forth, you may have a general idea of where you want to go, but you don't know exactly what the course is going to take. So I would call it stochastic revolution. The revolution is a constant process of attacking and reacting. And of course, when you achieve the first concession, then you just go on and agitate for the next one and so on. And so on. And it's it's an endless cycle of revolution. So, you know, we naturally ask, well, what's the end game? And the answer is there isn't one. And think about this worldview that says there's this constant conflict between good and evil. So it's a never-ending revolution. There's this vague promise of a better society once we've destroyed the existing structures. But how can we ever get there? In this idea, a static society is exactly what's intolerable. Because the static society is the de facto proof that the haves are just trying to hold on to what they have. So think about the consequences of this so-called progressive philosophy. Nothing that we've done in the past is worth preserving. Nothing we're doing now is worth keeping. And then we have some slogans that just popped into my head. 
open change or forward nonsensical kinds of slogans that again are consistent with the idea that there's this constant churn of change. And if that's true, then it also follows that there's never really such a thing as normal when you're in a constant state of flux. Now here's where I'm going to take <clears throat> Alinsky's philosophy to what I think is its natural conclusion. He doesn't say this. But I think if you take everything that he does say, it kind of leads you to the question, well, once you have power over your enemies, why not just kill them? Right? And what came to mind here, if you haven't heard of it, it's by a guy named Gregory Stanton called The Ten Stages of Genocide. You can Google that and find it. And it goes like this. Basically, you know, this is what I'm thinking. If you really, really hate your enemies and you want to get the ultimate revenge against them, remember, there's no reconciliation, no redemption in this worldview. Then, once you have the power over them, and I think this is kind of a preemptive strategy, you don't want them to get it back, right? So why not just get rid of them? I'm just trying to take this to its logical conclusion, and I think that's it. Genocide seems to be consistent with the means-ends arguments that he uses, and with his imperative to exercise power against those that are considered to be the enemy oppressors. And after all, in this dualistic worldview, good and bad are just mostly a matter of which side you're on. That ought to scare you a little. And of course, we notice that at first glance we might say, well, genocide couldn't happen in America in the and then the answer to that has been going on for a long time, right? We've depersonalized the unborn, and we've slaughtered about 65 million of them. And this is what I suspect, <clears throat> that the genocide against the unborn is to preserve the woman's right to avoid being oppressed by the responsibilities of parenthood. That's how I would probably frame it, given this kind of a view. He explicitly affirms his belief in the right to abortion and contraception. Uh, it's also based on this persistent myth that children are a cause of poverty, so we have to get rid of them. Now the narrative is that children are a cause of what? Oh, come on. Sorry. Climate change. Oh. they got a big carbon footprint. Uh, and interestingly, again, context, this was a couple of years before Roe v. Wade was handed down. So he's saying this even before Roe v. Wade. He has what I would call an idiotic optimism. Will things get better? And the answer is, well, yes and no. Again, that's the yin and the yang. The good and the bad always go together. Meaning for him is found in the struggle. And that sounds a little like Nietzsche. Why study Alinsky? I've alluded to it a little bit already. First of all, generally, I'd say it's helpful in understanding the devil's tactics, how he operates. But there's an enduring legacy of evil here. The last 50 years of revolutionary politics, through people like the Clintons and the Obamas and the guy who's in there now who was part of that same cartel, um, then you have power politics of billionaires like Soros and Gates. You see those things being played out. 
and also in part because I think it's useful in the PCA's fight against the sodomite agenda that's trying to take over the PCA. Notice that they say they envision a PCA worth having, which means what? The current PCA isn't one worth keeping. Got to change, man. So that's a lot to cover in a short time. I think I just barely made my time. Maybe one or two minutes. And that leaves us a little bit of time before break to have some discussion. Here's my first question. Do you think all this polarization, uh, inflaming resentments, do you think they could ever actually do that here in America? Ah, gee, how could we do that? Um, let me let me see if I can. job. This is one of the things that was really obvious as an agenda of the Obama. I'll call it a regime and not yeah. an administration. Was polarizing America along racial lines. He's the first black president, even though he's just as white as he is black, fifty-fifty, right? Um, which made which made it impossible, essentially, for a spineless Republican Party to oppose his agenda, even when they had the majority. Because why? What's the charge? What's the accusation? As soon as you say anything that goes against what the president wanted to do, it's racist. And we have been hearing that over and over and over again. And... That came up again big time two years ago with the George Floyd incident. And so this constant inflammation of race relations. Um, and then you've got guys who are supposedly, you know, they want to cast themselves in the mode of a Martin Luther King Jr. But I think I prefer the description of race pimps because they've turned racism into an industry to give themselves power and influence. They don't want to solve the problems of racism. They want to aggravate the problems of racism. And for what? For some kind of revolutionary change. So didn't didn't Trump do the same thing? Not with race, but he used he used polarization for his own. So, and, and what I was thinking as you were talking that this isn't this is broader than just you know what revolutionaries do. This is what people do when they try to articulate yeah. the vision for what they want without virtue. Yes, and I think that was the dilemma. I can't speak for everybody, but I'm sure there are others who felt the difficulty of showing some support for that guy, seeing that he's doing some of the same kinds of things, but from the other side Mm -hmm. of the the political aisle. Yeah. Um, You know... Something that he became pretty famous for <laughs> was putting labels on his opponents, right? Yeah. But would we say, I agree completely with what you said, but like, for instance, one of the labels he put on what the media was fake news. He put that label on. But it is my view that was a correct label. Right? So, so I get it. I hear what you're saying. By the way, 
even here, I feel like I must say, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter. You know, uh, which you always have to say, apparently. <clears throat> but, but at least it seemed to me that many of the labels that he used, that I recall, had some merit to them. But he did use it. Matter. Yeah, he did use it as a cudgel, though, right? Yes. He would, oh. he would say he would threaten Fox News. You know, when they had that story, I remember. I don't know what it was about, but it, it was something he didn't like. And he's like, "Well, Fox is doing this fake news thing like the rest of them." Right. right. So it, it yeah. was sort of a it was a way to cow them. You know, I'm going to call you names if you don't keep. Yes. Uh, if you don't toe the line. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We would say we talked about this some here this semester and in the last semester about slogans. You know. And unfortunately, we are in this place in our society, uh, a la 1984, where slogans... So then the question becomes, is it wrong to use slogans even if they're accurate? Is it wrong to wield that power? Is it wrong to polarize if it's true? Right? And of course, we have the biblical example of the polarization of the gospel. Sure. Right? Truth is always going to polarize. Yeah. Um, but he, here's here's what bugs me, and I'll go back to a couple that I quoted. I'll, I'll use the first one, hope and change. Mm-hmm. And the problem with those kinds of political slogans mm-hmm. is that they're designed for you to believe whatever you want to believe about them. Yep. They're not designed, and Alinsky would say, you know, you, you, you've got to communicate clearly Ironically, but then he also says he's a supporter of using slogans that are kind of vague because yeah. you need to be a vague, have a vague slogan because you don't necessarily know what direction or what twists and turns the revolution is going to take. So you need something that's out there to kind of get people hooked. Well, and to keep more people, because remember, uh, more issues, more people, more power. Right. That ambiguity, and by the way, that's a hundred percent in the PCA is the, um, the folks on the other side of the aisle, uh, I won't use the strong language you did because I'm going to try to get along with them, uh, is um, <clears throat> the notion is their ambiguity meant that it was very difficult to pin them down. It was very difficult for me. If there, if there was anybody who was even nearly modern, they would give them a benefit of the doubt. We go, well, you know, what do they really mean? Ambiguity. And, and then I would try to say to this, no, no, no. They're sodom- it's a sodomite agenda. And it was hard to pin them down because it's ambiguous. So it's also a strategy to gain more people. To build support. To yeah. build support. Again, the idea is that you have the oppressed on one side and the oppressors on the other. And that's how you polarize these kinds of things. And of course... The homosexual agenda has been proceeding for at least the last two or three generations. You you yep. used a slide from what was it, nineteen seventy or so, the first yep. what became the gay pride parade. The manifesto. That you you polarize the issue by painting yourself as the oppressor, and so we have this narrative that keeps coming in all these different areas about, you know, well I'm oppressed because I I'm this or I'm oppressed because I'm that. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a racial issue, or whether it's a sexual agenda. Yeah, because the individual issue. is powerless, and you got to change the systems. Yeah, right. And one of the hallmarks of conservatism is we believe that you make the country better 
by making individual people better. Okay? Individual virtue makes a better country. Whereas um, people on the other side of the aisle, the leftists, would say that you have to change the system, you don't change the people. Yeah, how many times in the last two years, especially, have we heard that expression, systemic racism? Right. There's never any attempt to define what it means. That's right. Or give any example. And all of these things, and this occurred to me some years ago as well, that what I've noticed, because I did pro-life work some years ago, that the, the goal is polarization. It's hard to imagine an issue where people are more polarized than abortion, you know, pro-abortion versus That's right. pro-life. Um, and the goal is to make those issues so emotional yeah. that we can't actually talk about them. Right. So it's designed to create this emotional reaction, right. and that has the effect. There was a book written, I think, back in the 90s, uh, Daniel Goleman, Emotional Intelligence. Yeah. And he talked about what's called emotional hijacking. And when you're in a fit of anger or a fit of fear or something like that, some strong emotion, right. it basically shuts down your rational faculties yep. so that you can't reason in that situation. Um, you're just There's some kind of, a, kind of a pre-programmed emotional response that you're intended to have. Yeah. All right. Very good. I like, Chris, the comment of... Uh, the polarization when you're trying to uh, put forth an agenda without virtue, yeah. right? So if, if it's, you know, and that's one of the things we feel like, we're like, hey, let's talk about it rationally. Let's reason this out, right? Of course, Paul said, let us reason together, right? So so this is kind of our approach, is we'd like to talk about it like rational people, right? Because we believe we have tr- truth and virtue on our side. And of course, then, the enemy, the opponents, want to do the opposite of that. Yeah. And when you relativize something, and this is part of what occurs to me, when when you say that your moral philosophy and your worldview is relativistic, part of what that does is it basically neutralizes any possibility of even having a rational discussion or making a rational critique. Right. He's admitting... Right. That his philosophy is contradictory. He says, you know, the, the world is contradictory. Yeah. It's just, that's part of reality, it's contradictory. Yeah, that whole thing. Is that? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This isn't an argument. Yeah. So he says it's all contradiction. And when you say, no, it's not, he goes, see? Yeah, there you go. And, and then proves, he's done. Proves the point. The, the Monty Python sketch, you know, the argument clinic. Okay. I've got to show that one at some point in the class. Today, so. Okay. All right, we'll have to look that up. Yeah. Uh, sir, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate where you your logical conclusion, and I'm in 100% agreement with you. If all of these things that he says are true, they're, they're, if, if it is, you know, devils and, and angels, the logical conclusion is genocide. And we've, by the way, seen that repeated throughout all of world history and the way I've talked about it is when the oppressed become the oppressors they are twice the ruthless yeah. yeah they are twice and we we did 93 in Rwanda it, it just oh and and over and over and over and over again we've seen it yeah so that is a great logical conclusion and I'm trying to figure out 
how I could use some of this in my because I agree with you. It's exactly what's happening in the PCA, uh, and it's it's something that I think I've said in first semester was one of my clues trying to figure out how far off are these guys, how bad are these guys, where am I? Because when when I first was hearing about Revoice, quite frankly, I was completely open mind. Let's let's hear the concerns. Let's talk about this. You know, uh, and one of my giveaway clues was I kept recognizing the things that the guys in the PCA on the other side of the aisle were doing that were identical to what the left does, which is that ambiguity and emotional arguments and all, and that was one of my big clues to recognize that they're completely wrong, was because I saw how much they're like the left. Well, yeah, if you listen to Greg Johnson's rhetoric, he's saying that the the church has to repent of its lack of hospitality towards the homosexuals and the homosexual community and not being willing to you know, redefine missiology in order to reach that community. And again, that word community, I have to put it in air quotes because that's, that's like a dog whistle to me. That's saying there's something wrong uh, when you start talking about your communities because it carries the connotation just in that word of division. Right? We're dividing ourselves up into these communities. But we do believe in division. We, we believe that the people of God, we believe that the church is not the world. We do believe in division. And we do believe in communities, right? I mean, it, it, it's become a word like flourish. We actually believe in flourishing. You know, we, 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 think, we, all should, we think we should flourish. But we know what the word means yeah. in its context today. Okay, 6.25, let's uh, respect Chris's opportunity and time. So 6.25, we'll come back at 6.35. Chris, you'll start us up, and that will give us time for questions afterwards.